You can turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 5. I've changed uh, the sermon text slightly since I got Kelly the bulletin information. We're only going to be doing verses 1 through 11 today. 1 through 11. You know, this text is one of uh, those uh, difficult texts for many. It's a text we may be tempted to skip over. We may read it and wince at it. We might wish at times that this wasn't one of the stories that made Luke's cut when chronicling the early church. But I want to assure you that this is not a text we need to be ashamed of. This is not a text we need to run from. There is no text in Scripture that we should be ashamed of. God's Word is good, it is holy, and it will stand forever. What we're going to see is an incredible contrast between the end of Acts chapter 4 and the beginning of Acts chapter 5. I'll remind you, last week we looked at the end of Acts chapter 4 and we saw a picture of the church at its best. We're given by Luke this picturesque vision of the early church, which is unified by Christ and unified in Christ. And this unity calls them to not only speak about their Lord, but also to act. We're told about this action. Whenever a need would arise in the church, those needs were met. The Christians would give. They would do so voluntarily. They would give to the poor among them. And this even included selling their own property. A need would be recognized. There was excitement to be a part of the church's work, and they recognized the Lord has provided for me, and I can provide for someone else. And so they were willing to part with their possessions for the sake of kingdom growth. And we're given the example of Barnabas. At the end of chapter 4, we're told that Barnabas had a field which he sold, and then he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas was moved to give, and that's what he did. He was concerned for God's people. And so he responded. And this response came from a heart that loved God and cared for his people. I know pretty much everyone in this room has a Barnabas figure in your life, in your history, that you can point to. Someone who has been an incredible Blessing from God who has stepped up and given where there was a need. We should be very grateful for those people and thank God for them uh, constantly. But what we're going to see this week is not everyone was like Barnabas. You know, we have this picturesque portrait of the church. It's exemplified in the cheerful generosity of Barnabas, but then chapter 5 begins, and it begins with the word, but. 
Here's this wonderful picture of Barnabas, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Luke is preparing his readers that there's something different happening here. Yes, they also sold a piece of property. From all outward appearances, it may seem very similar to Barnabas. But at the core, it's completely different. We'll be reminded in this text that the church is not perfect. That there are hypocrites within the church. That there's no perfect church, not even the early church. And this is because the church is comprised of sinners. The only perfect church is the church triumphant. Those brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers who have gone ahead, have gone to be with the Lord, are with Him in glory, and are awaiting His coming. Yeah, it's... It's, it, it's very encouraging when someone will visit Trinity and they're, they're complimentary of you as a congregation. Uh, they, they appreciate our unique style of preaching, just slowly working our way through a book of the Bible. There are various things that we might be complimented on, but it will make me a bit nervous because for those people who may visit or come and they're so complimentary, I just, in the back of my mind, just want to say, wait a week, wait a year, wait a month, and you will discover that you have not found the perfect church. There's a story I read about this week that comes from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, the renowned English preacher. And someone once told him that, he said, I'm Spurgeon, I'm going to leave your church because I'm going to go find the perfect one. Could you imagine saying that to Spurgeon? Spurgeon responded to this man. He said, all right, well, when you find it, please don't join it because you will ruin it. There is no perfect church. And from our text today, we clearly see that there were at least two hypocrites in the early church. But before we hear about them and their story, let's ask the Lord to bless uh, the preaching of his word. Father God, we are dependent on you for uh, the very beating of our hearts and the very breath in our lungs. Father, we are dependent on you this morning to hear uh, your word. Would you speak to us through it? We know that this is not some old religious document we're, we're reading. This is the word of God. Uh, would you use it in a mighty way in our hearts this morning? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We'll read our text, Acts 5, verses 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge kept back for himself 
some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of this land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. And they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church. And upon all who heard of these things. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So we're introduced to a couple in this church, Ananias and Sapphira, who, like Barnabas, also sold a piece of property and also gave money to the church to care for those in need. We need to note that this is not something they were required to do. Remember, this is voluntary. Peter makes this clear in verse 4. Peter says, This was your property. And after it sold, the profits, the proceeds, belong to you. You are not required to sell this piece of land. You are not required to give every penny of the proceeds to the church. You had every right to wisely steward the money that you'd been entrusted with and to do with it as you saw fit. This is something we need to understand. That this trouble for Ananias and Sapphira does not spring from the fact that they did not give every single penny of this sale to the church. Things go badly for them because they lied. They gave money and lied about it. We see in verse 2, And with his wife's knowledge, Ananias kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. There's a conspiracy here. Husband and wife, together, they are in on this. They're pretending like they're giving all of the money they made off of this land. They're pretending like they're giving all of it when really they're only giving a portion They'd agreed together to lie. 
to the church, but not only to the church. As Peter said, also they lied to God. They lied to the Holy Spirit. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, this couple is in on it together. They are in agreement and unified in their deceit. Now, why would they do this? Why would they lie? Well, we are not told the exact thoughts running through their minds, but as sinners ourselves, it's not hard to imagine. This is not the only time someone has lied about how much money they give to the church. I'm sure at the beginning they had good intentions. They saw needs in their community. They witnessed Barnabas and his example, and they felt moved to sell their their property, and they did, to join in the work of the church. But once they sold the land, and once they held that money in their hands, things changed. They wanted to have their cake and eat it too. They wanted to give something and they wanted to be seen like Barnabas and they wanted to receive praise and they wanted to appear godly and to be thought of as eminent disciples. They wanted to be seen as one of those all-star couples in the church. And then this temptation grew They believed the lie, the lie that no one's going to know. You know, they didn't have Zillow where, you know, where everyone can look up your house online and get a ballpark figure of what you paid or what you sold the house for. Zillow, we don't have Realtor.com. No one's going to know how much money we made off of this sale. You know... We do have some expenses. We've got some, some bills to pay. What if we just act like we give all the proceeds, like Barnabas, but really let's only give some? We could get all the credit and also hold on to some for ourselves. That's what happened. They believed that lie. No one would ever know, and so they gave in to the temptation. But notice, just that action alone is not when they drop dead. They drop dead after a, a refusal to repent. They had the opportunity to confess, to come clean, and they don't take it. They double down on this lie. We see this especially with Sapphira. She's questioned and she has the opportunity to confess but she doubles down. We're reminded that giving gifts to God is sacred business. I wonder how often we forget that. How do we view giving? Maybe just begrudgingly, there are other things we'd rather spend our money on, but we know we have to give to the church. That's how we view it. Maybe we view it as a just simply a bill to pay. There's kind of a, an emotional disconnection there. It's just, it's just a normal thing. We, we have to do nothing special. 
maybe giving is seen as low priority. It's the bottom of the budget. But giving to God is sacred business. And it being sacred business means it's, it's able to tarnish this. We're able to tarnish this gift. That's what Ananias and Sapphira do. They tarnish this gift with dishonesty and hypocrisy. That's the problem here. The problem is not that they didn't give every penny from this land to the apostles. No, they lied. They lied to the apostles. They lied to God. And Peter makes an interesting statement when questioning Ananias. He says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back a portion? We're reminded that we do have an enemy who is real and who is very much alive. But he is not omnipresent, meaning Satan cannot be everywhere at once. Which means that Satan probably has never tempted me and he's never tempted you. Satan has bigger fish to fry than, than me. I think most of the time I'm just lured into temptation by uh, the own, my own sin in my heart. But Satan does show up here. His attention is laser-focused on what is going on in the early church. That's the epicenter of the threat to his kingdom of darkness. And the, the fellowship and the unity and the generosity that was manifesting itself in the early church, made him burn with anger. He hated it. And he wanted to distort it and pervert it and twist it. That's, that's all Satan can do. Satan cannot create. All he can do is corrupt. He just wants to come in like if you're working on a jigsaw puzzle on the table and someone comes in in anger and just scrambles all the pieces to cause disunity and confusion and attempt to thwart the plans of God. That's what Satan tries to do. So he tempts Ananias and Sapphira to sow division and deceit in the church, to corrupt this wonderful action of the church, caring for those who are in need. Jesus calls Satan the father of lies in John 8. And we're reminded that when we speak falsehoods, when we speak half-truths, fibs, white lies, shaded truths, when we are not forthright, we are not reflecting the glory of the one who is the truth, Jesus Christ. Instead, when we indulge those little peccadilloes in our minds, we reflect the image of Satan. And Ananias and Sapphira conspired together to lie and keep some of this cash and judgment falls on them. Peter rebukes Ananias. We're told that after Ananias hears Peter's words, he fell down and breathed his last and the young men rose up and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. 
apparently a part of the youth ministry or the young adult ministry in this church was to serve as pallbearers. That's what they did. We don't know what Sapphira was doing for three hours, but after an interval of three hours, she arrived and Peter questioned her too. And notice, she has an out. Peter asks her a question. Is this how you said you're giving everything from this land? Is that the case? And she says, yes, we've given you the full amount. And Peter responds, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have carried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down and breathed her last. Here we see the end result of chasing our sin. The end result of embracing our sin and refusing to repent and refusing to confess, and refusing to humble ourselves before God, the end is death. That's where all sin leads. That is the goal and purpose behind all sin, to kill you. Now, I'm sure you could find commentators who would find, who would attempt to find some natural explanation for these two deaths. Oh, maybe they both just happened to be struck with a heart attack at that moment. Maybe a a level of anxiety and being caught in their lie just was too much and it, it killed them. No. How did they die? God killed them. That's a simple statement. It's simple to see, but it gets in our crawl, doesn't it? That statement, God killed these two. We don't like that. But it's what happens. It gives us a picture of how God feels about giving. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 9 that God loves a cheerful giver, that it delights him, it pleases him when we cheerfully, generously give. God is less enthusiastic with a reluctant giver or one who gives under compulsion. It seems from this text that God hates a lying giver. That his wrath burns toward lying, hypocritical givers. Now, some of us may wonder... Why what happened here in Acts 5 does not happen more today. and I think we can experience the wrath of God differently today than it was experienced in the apostolic age. <clears throat> there is something called the passive wrath of God. Where God will <clears throat> hand us over. He'll say, all right, you want to chase that sin? I'll let you go. And the more we walk, the more we chase it, the harder our hearts become. 
and the harder it becomes for us to ever repent and turn. So we don't need to think we're getting away with anything here. We need to repent from any dishonesty in this area. Our God is gracious. He is patient. He promises to bless us when we cheerfully give and sacrificially give, but we better beware of being dishonest about our giving, about lying about our giving, wanting to have our cake and eat it too, wanting to receive praise and acclaim from those around us while misleading them when it comes to our generosity. When we do so, we're at risk of God's displeasure. The last thing we see in both of these deaths is that great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. So Ananias and Sapphira drop dead, and what's the reaction from the crowd? Great fear. You know, maybe, I mean, there are lots lots of signs and wonders going on at this time. We read about the lame man who was healed at the gates of the temple. There were undoubtedly lots of people streaming into the church. I'm sure there were those who had not been converted. They'd just seen something spectacular and were drawn in. But this cools them down a bit. They see this God is real. This God is holy. This God is serious. Giving to him and his work is a sacred privilege. Matthew Henry says, We've seen signs and wonders which were miracles of mercy, but now comes a miracle of judgment. Here is an instance of severity following the instances of goodness, that God may be both loved and feared. As believers, as those who are called and drawn into the church, we know that grace has been shown to us. We've been forgiven. We are no longer seen as guilty. Our God is not out to get us. He is our Father. We are His children. But that does not mean that we stop fearing Him. There's always a sense of awe and reverence and wonder and amazement. He is our Creator. He holds our lives and even the breath in our mouth. He holds that in His hand. He is Father and awesome Lord. Now, where does the problem come in with this text? Well, why, why don't we like this text? When, when I make the statement that God killed Ananias and Sapphira, why can that bother us? A couple things, I think. Number one is that we've lost a sense of the holiness of God. And we've also lost a sense of the magnitude and severity of sin. We'll be tempted to think, all right, we've got a story here about a real estate deal and a donation to a church. And a couple fudged some, some numbers. How is this a big deal 
How is this some great sin? Is this double death penalty? How is this not an overreaction? Making statements like that reveals our ignorance on the holiness of God and our own sin. Think of Isaiah's response. I go to it again and again. Isaiah's response in Isaiah 6 when he encounters the presence of God in the temple, he is undone. He's one of the greatest, godliest men alive at the time. And what does he say? Woe to me, I am undone. It's not only the holiness of God, but it's also the right view of sin. The Westminster Confession of Faith says two things about sin. It says, No sin is so small that it does not deserve damnation. There is no, there is no sin so small that it does not deserve damnation. Nor is any sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. So you've got two truths about sin. There is no sin that is so small that it does not deserve damnation, nor is there any sin that is so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. We're given a picture of the weight of sin. We're given that picture in the cross, that Jesus came and died for all our sins, even the ones we mistakenly view as insignificant. These lies, these peccadilloes, he died for those too. Our hypocrisy, our deceit, our half-truths, those demanded the blood of Jesus. We need to view sin as God views sin. As an act of cosmic treason, where we attempt to dethrone him and to be our own God. You know, maybe we're tempted to view the actions here as an overreaction because we see, we mistakenly view God's patience for sin with acceptance. Uh, in, in his seminal work, The Holiness of God, R.C. Sproul tells, tells a story when he was a college professor he, he had a term paper due every single month. Every month. There was a term paper due at the class period, the last class period of the month. And he said if he told his students at the very beginning in the syllabus, if you do not turn in your paper on the due date, you'll get an F. It will not be accepted. Well, the first month ended. It was time to turn in the term paper. There were 10 students in the class who for some reason had not finished their paper, and so they plead to Dr. Sproul and ask for leniency, and so he gives them the weekend to finish the paper and turn it in. He shows them grace. Next month rolls around. Time to turn in the paper. And would you believe this time it wasn't 10 students, this time it was 30 students who did not turn in their paper on time, but came to Dr. Sproul and pleaded for leniency, and he gave them the weekend to turn it in. 
Well, the next month came time to turn in their monthly paper, and on the due date, there were 50 students, much larger number, who did not turn in their paper. But this time, they weren't as groveling in their pleading to him. It's, it's almost like they just expected or presumed that they would have the weekend. Dr. Sproul finally let the hammer down. And he went down the list and called out names on the roll and said, Do you have your paper? And if they didn't have the paper, he wrote an F by their name. And when the students protested and said, This is unjust, he said, No, this is not unjust. Don't confuse the, my long-suffering and my patience here with acceptance that your breaking my rules is acceptable. It's a picture that we're given here. That I'll, I'll, I'll illustrate it with, with this quote. Human nature balks at the story of Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira because we think one little lie is not deserving of God's wrath and the execution of capital punishment. But this shows how little we understand God's holiness and how our own and our own sinfulness. Sin is an assault on the very character of God. The fact that God did not cast all of humanity into ruin when Adam and Eve first rebelled against him is a sign of his long-suffering and his amazing grace and not a sign that sin is not really a big deal. See what he's, what he's saying there. We'll, we'll pause. The fact that God has spared us, the fact that God has not struck us down, that he hasn't struck me down or struck you down, that, that is not a sign that sin is not a big deal. It's a sign of his patience and his grace. The commentator continues saying, The true marvel in this passage is not so much that God killed Ananias Ananias and Sapphira, but that God has not executed justice on all of us, and that instead his son came to die so that there might be a church community that enjoyed his father's favor and salvation. In this light, the grace of the gospel found in Jesus Christ shines with the utmost radiance and glory. I wonder if we're able to see that. We read a passage like this, and we're, I think, instantly kind of prone and wired to protest against God and against His justice. But have we recognized that the true miracle is that everyone else in that room was still standing? That you and I are still standing. That God has not executed justice on us, which would have been right. But instead, he sends his son to die so that he would be struck in our place. The condemnation would fall on him. Death would fall on him so that we might live. That's what's really astounding. I pray that we would more and more study 
and pursue and turn our eyes on not only the weight of our sin, but the character and purity and perfection of our God. This will cause the same thing we see in this text. Godly fear and wonder and awe at who our God is and what he has provided for us in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father God, would you subdue our rebellious hearts, these know-it-all, presumptive hearts that think we know best, that think we understand justice better than you do, that think we are more gracious and we are more merciful than you are? How foolish and blind we are. God, would we be overcome? Would we be given a vision of who you are, of your holiness and your perfection and your worth and your glory and your power and your weight? Because if we are able to see that, we'll come to understand ourselves much better and who we really are. Father, we thank you for the grace that you've shown to us that I have sinned so many times and yet you have stayed your hand. You have shown grace, not because you're accepting my sins or you're dismissing it as insignificant, not because of that, but as an attempt to demonstrate your character that you are long-suffering, you are patient, you are gracious, and you are merciful. And that justice has been accomplished. And that it fell on Jesus Christ on the cross. Help us to live, to hide under him, our Savior, and be content to dwell there the rest of our days. We ask this in his name. Amen.